Hey guys, it's a great day. Back with another great episode of the PFREI Podcast, a passion for real estate investments, where we talk with experts on their personal experience in the real estate business in order to provide the best investment strategies and techniques used by leading fund managers, financiers, SEC attorneys, house flippers, real estate accountants, and more. I'm your host, Bukwam Bilal, and I'm very excited for the next guest of the show. On this episode, I chat with Bill Bimel, an asset manager and founder of RSI Asset Management. He shares his experience raising capital over the years, his start in residential real estate, managing a fund, and his passion for success in borrower mediations. Another great episode. I'm excited for you all to hear. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. All right, guys, another great episode of PFREI, A Passion for Real Estate Investments. I'm your host, Fuquan Balao, and we're back with another great episode. Today, we have uh, Bill Bimel from Spurs Capital, a.k.a. Ted DiBiase, the $100 million man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> remember that show? I'm showing my age now, the bionic man. We got $100 on back in, I think that was in the 80s. But yeah, I, I put Bill on the show today really to really add value to a lot of people who's out there trying to raise capital. You know, he's seasoned in, in this space. And um, I've learned a lot from Bill over time to him at different conferences. And we were actually just chatting before um, before the show uh, about some, some uh, things that he went through during the last summer and now. So we got him fresh back from vacation, nice and tech. <laughs> So now you did a vacation from the vacation. I, I I went to Aruba last summer and I took a week. I didn't take my cell phone. Like you, I know you took your cell phone. I left my cell phone purposely. Impressive. I never. I, it felt good. I had really good quality time with my kids. We went on Father's Day weekend, and when I came back, um, I didn't take my laptop either. I was slammed. It took me like two yeah. weeks to catch up. So it's crazy. But without further ado, we jump right into it. So, you know, Bill, you know, I, I kind of, and I was just talking before we started the show, you know, I, I look at you as someone in a space that, you know, brings a lot of value as far as raising capital, because you, you've been market cycle tested, you've been through the ups and downs, you've been through the challenges. So let's talk a little bit about your background and, and what got sure. you to the raising capital space and some of what sure. you're today. Sure, sure, sure. Thanks, Kukwan. I um, come from a real estate background. Uh, I grew up in the residential world. Um, when I moved back to Florida from California, New York via California in 2002, um, I took it upon myself to get involved in real estate here in Florida and uh, immediately got involved in the fix and flip residential space. So um, at, under those guises, started to develop a network of investors, hard money lenders that um, I could partner with. Uh, on smaller scale deals. Um, What uh, I got lucky, uh, I kind of left the commercial, the residential market in mid 2000, got a call back in the summer of 2008 from a asset manager in Southern California. Now this was literally about two to three months before the fall of Lehman. So things were teetering at that time. The real uh, proverbial shit had not hit the fan yet. Um, and he had told me, listen, I have an opportunity to buy all these defaulting 
construction of perm loans in, in an area called Port St. Lucie, Florida, which many may remember is kind of ground zero for the foreclosure crisis in, in, in uh, late 2008, early 2009. Um, and for me, that was a light bulb moment. Uh, there's an opportunity to, to work with somebody who is dealing in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in, in potential real estate investments. So I immediately got on board and I spent the, a, a good portion of the last decade in the asset management field, managing portfolios of non-performing residential loans, REO fix and flip. Um, I've overseen about 250 million of acquisition liquidation deals um, and done so on behalf of a number of funds. Um, first as a vice president at Spurs Capital, and now as a managing director at Spurs. Um, about Two years ago, well, I would say, wow, three years ago, it was in 2016, um, we were starting to see a taper off of our main investment partners in terms of the amount of spending that was going on. Uh, it was right around the time of the election. Uh, they were kind of going in a different direction, wanting to buy more performing loans, which were less asset management intensive than uh, non-performing. And so at that point, I looked to uh, the CEO of our company, Peter Slagowitz, and I said, you know, Pete, we, we got to go out and find some new money. We had been at that point, um, had a, a cushion of spending 50 to $100 million a year, and that was enough for us to live off of uh, in fees and, and, and carried interest. Um, but we saw the writing on the wall. And when you only, when the bulk of your business comes from one investment partner, it, it, it's a risk. It puts you in a, in a precarious position, uh, either if that investment partner decides to take advantage of that situation, which they, these didn't, they're great. They've been great partners and we continue to manage about 50 million for them now. Um, but the, obviously if they had decided to walk away at any point, we would have been out of business and overnight. Mm -hmm. So I turned to Peter, and at that point, Spurs Capital had no business development um, arm to it. And Peter really didn't have an appetite for, for a top-heavy type company where you, were, you had business, biz dev people running around looking for money. You didn't like to pay cap intro people. Um, so I took it upon myself to learn how to go out and raise money. Uh, and I learned a lot over the last two years. Um, I spent uh, well over $100,000 putting together decks and PPM documents and going to conferences and flying to all over the country and over around the world, actually, uh, looking for that next either investor or group of investors. So we originally went out looking for LP investors because... Um, and we put together a deck and a PPM and we, we, with the intention that we're never going to let this be in this position again, we want to have a broad base of investors, our next go around. Um, and, and that would give us some job security in the long run. Because at that point in 2016, we had uh, over the course of the previous five years successfully managed uh, about 700 million of investments between two uh, funds that we were managing. And we had shown a, we had never leveraged our Goshen fund. We had slightly leveraged our second Winstead fund, um, but really our main fund, our Goshen fund had never had any leverage. And yet we were returning high teens actual 
15 percent wow. annualized unleveraged and that was after paying out fees and paying out servicing and paying off borrowers and and all the legal expenses that went um with managing a, a portfolio of you know 100 to 200 million per year um so we had the track record which was probably point one in the fundraising Absolutely. world um and um you know, I don't know how to get around that. Uh, I, I, you know, if if you don't have, you have to have something to go off of, even if it's on a smaller scale. So I have had these large. We've had the we had our funds that had uh, a good history, and then I also had some smaller friends and family funds where we had actually shown even better returns. We were in the twenties IRR, but even with uh, you know, there's always uh, uh, questions and uh, and uh, there's always hurdles in finding new investors and developing new relationships. And so um, I, I can't say that I'm a, uh, a genius or, and I can't say that I did it all correctly, but eventually um, uh, a meeting that I had at MBA in the February of 2017, um, about just over about 14, 16 months later in the summer of 2018 resulted in a hundred million dollar term sheet from a institutional partner who we have now launched a new fund with. We launched in the fourth quarter of 18. Uh, we've spent 40 million to date. And of course, when it rains, it pours. Um, that LP fund that I was originally set out to start building uh, started to bring in LP money. And, um, and in the fall of last year, we got another 20 million into our LP fund, which we launched in December. And we've spent uh, close to that amount already, uh, and we're we're continuing to raise money into that fund now today. That's awesome, man. That's that's really a great opportunity, you know, and a great chance to position yourself in the market. Um, you know, I know pricing now they say it's a seller's market, or what are you seeing? Are you seeing it's leveled off, or are the sellers out here? Uh, it comes and goes. Okay. It comes yeah. and goes. Yeah. You know, um, it is a relationship business. Um, so, uh, the, the, when there was a plethora of available inventory, it was easier for more people to get better deals. Yeah. Um, and then as you mentioned off the call, as we were first starting, the trade started getting big the last couple of years. Um, and especially the government auction stuff, the HUDs, the Fannie Freddie deals, you know, everything we've seen in the public domain that's gone through an auction process that I feel there was a lot of dumb money thrown at those, at those deals. And, um, and the pricing was, was, was pretty crazy the last few years. Um, seller expectations remain high for the most part. I agree. Uh, there's, especially last year, I really experienced a disparity uh, between where uh, our sellers of NPL um, you know, where their release points were, where they could actually sell stuff versus where, what we were willing to bid. Um, luckily our institutional partner relationship is set up in such a way that we can be very patient with placing the money. It's not like we get a hundred million bucks and the clock starts ticking on prep. So we've always been able to set up the relationships with our partners in such a way that allows us to be very critical of every bid that we make. So we don't get hit a lot, but we do get hit. And we get hit on stuff 
going back to the relationship issue, um, and as the market is starting to contract, as over the, the frustration of smaller investors is causing more buyers to kind of walk away and say, look, I, I just can't afford to do this business anymore. Everything is, you know, I'm modeling, uh, you know, I have to model to a 7% return in order to get hit on a bid. Well, I can't make, it's not worth the risk. So as the market is starting to contract, we have remained a diligent buyer, a patient buyer, but we also have relationships that have extended way beyond 2008. I'm just lucky to be in a situation where, you know, Peter Slago is the CEO of our company, uh, Rich Acklin, the, the guy that sits on our trade desk. These guys have been in the mortgage secondary, secondary mortgage market for over two decades. So they worked at UBS, they worked at DLJ, they worked at Credit Suisse First Boston, and they were buyers and sellers of loans. Um, and in Peter's case, managing director of those of the NPL whole loan trading divisions at those big institutional firms. So guys that came up the ranks of trading loans underneath them are the guys that now sit on the desks at Bayview and Rocktop and Carrington. So a lot of the relationships that we're, we're kind of blessed in the sense that we have um, long relationships that are more than just transactional that, that go a little bit farther. And what it has ended up enabling is, is trades to happen where they couldn't happen elsewhere. Um, we've even gone so far when we had a little lull in, in available cash last year, where these guys had done business with Baby over the years, but couldn't seem to get a trade put together in the last two to three years. And we were able to step in as the buyer and negotiate a deal and get a trade done. Yeah. Or we've had uh, situations with where Rocktop has turned to us and said, you know, you weren't, you, you weren't even the cover bid. You were the third best bid, but we're going with you because of a surety of close and that in that we know that you guys are going to follow through on what you say yeah. and and the and the due diligence and closing process will, will be good so so a lot of the stuff that's hindering buyers with maybe newer connections in the market we're not feeling as much of an effect by it doesn't make it easy uh you know we're bidding on stuff every day and we're not getting hit on it um, and we're just sticking to our guns. Luckily, we're in a place where our money doesn't cost us anything until we spend it. So yeah, that's that's great to have a situation like almost like a line of credit set up, and that really right. gives you you know an advantage over most buyers in this space. So you know, let's talk about capital raising just a little bit. You you come in great detail, and I appreciate that. There's some of the challenges that are out there because people think that they can just open up a fund and managing a fund is easy. There's a lot of Challenges, there's a lot of hurdles, there's a lot of regulation that you have to pay attention to. So if someone is just thinking about setting up a fund and they want to get into business, what can you tell them about that and what direction can you point them in, in um, pitfalls? Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, it's very easy to set up a friends and family fund. You know, if you have a, a group of people you know and you're looking to go raise five, ten million dollars, that's fine. You can usually fly under the radar. When you start to get into anything more serious than that, where you're um, starting to develop new investor relationships or you're looking to buy in all 50 states and you are really planning, even if you're starting at 10, you're planning to get to 100 in a relatively short period of time. It's important to set that system up correctly to begin with. Um, and it's important to have the proper servicing relationship. 
it's important to have a, a proper uh, uh, tr uh, trust set up. Um, there is uh, about a $50,000 cost in setting up a trust alone, uh, but the value of having that trust is, is that it, it, it skirts a lot of the um, regulatory issues that are involved in uh, you know, owning and, and servicing loans in multiple states because obviously there are, are, are servicing guidelines and, and CFPB guidelines governing the ownership of, of loans and the servicing of them or the uh, that and the, so the trust is a necessary item obviously having a ppm is a very necessary item as well um and and getting a properly a, a document that's that's not only properly worded but is stood behind by a a, a law firm of respect um, I think that, so when I, one of the things that I learned very early is in, in, in putting together the team, make sure you have a very reputable third-party auditing team that signed up, whether or not, you know, you actually paid them any money, but that you agreed to represent you at the time that the fund is, is launched, making sure that there's a good legal team in place, making sure that the servicer relationships and the trust relationships are in place. and um, and then going out and marketing yourself obviously is is the big mystery, right? Is how you how you present yourself, and your track record, and your uh, legacy as a manager, um, you know, obviously plays a role as well. That's awesome, man. This is great stuff. Is uh, you know, I took some notes as always. I like doing these 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 podcasts because I I learn a lot a great deal as well, and the, the purpose of, of setting this up was so other speakers can come on and add value and, and kind of set the record straight. You know, people who have been market cycle tested, who's, who's been, um, you know, in the industry for a while and really can teach people how to avoid the, uh, the pitfalls. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and adding value and sharing those nuggets with us today. If, if my pleasure passionate for real estate investing, that's a question I ask all of the guests. I'm not going to let you slide without asking you that. So Wait, what's the question? Passionate for real estate investing, whether it's mortgage notes, the fix and flips and stuff you used to do, let's talk about it. Um, I really love fix and flip, uh, but I like it because when I can put my hands on it, you know, um, when I can touch, feel. I think that it, it, it is a smaller game that you're playing, right? Um, so I don't believe you can properly manage hundreds of fix and flips simultaneously, unless you have a hundred me's or a hundred Fuquans there to actually do it. Uh, um, so, but I, I've always loved it because it's a tangible ass. It's a tangible deal. It's something that you see a, an immediate return. If you do your job right, you're in and out in six months. So you're not subject to change, uh, major changes in the market. You usually can avoid um, getting caught with your, hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. Um, so that I've always had a passion for residential fits and flips. I also um, uh, have a, I also have a interest, uh, a growing interest in um, commercial development, um, single net, triple net deals or value add deals. Um, I would be lying to you if I said I had a huge track record in that regard. But um, as uh, as I've I've been involved in a few 
commercial deals um, where I've been able to go in, uh, take a distressed asset. And when I say distressed, it could be any number of things. It could be um, a bank building that I bought that had a ridiculously low um, uh, ridiculously low rent being paid by the bank where it, it kind of made the property, you know, worthless almost at the time. And then being able to figure out how to go in and reposition that either through buying the bank out or, or, or adding some value add. Um, and that's not that different than fix and flip, right? It's just fixing flip on a commercial level. And, and it's not that different than NPL as well, because it's all about problem solving, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whether it's in residential, commercial, or in NPL, it's all about problem solving. And I think the one thing that that uh, now that I'm talking and thinking, listening to myself <laughs> and answering your question, the thing that really, out of all of these years, about um, 17 years, I've been doing various forms of re real estate and mortgage investments um, and, and asset management here in Florida. Um, on the NPL front, what, what really drives me and what's, what's, what's probably I have the most passion for is going in and meeting with a borrower who has already had bad experiences with their previous lenders. Because we're buying NPLs, we're buying them from a previous owner, right, or an investor or a bank or whatnot. And in meeting that borrower, whether it's in a forced mediation setting or it just in a one-on-one -on -one knocking on their door, being able, they usually have some major walls up when I knock on the door, so to speak, and say, hey, I'm your, I own your loan, or my, I represent the company that owns your loan, and um, we'd like to sit down and, and, and talk about how we can solve this. And the walls go up immediately, but our method, which is outlined in my book, Win-Win Revolution, um, is all about finding the you benefits in this conversation mm -hmm. by sitting down with the borrower and instead of asking them to pay the $40,000 in arrears that they, I know they can't afford since they couldn't even afford one month payment. Um, I'm going to change the conversation about to what would you like to see come out of this and really finding a way either through, like I said, through sitting down with a borrower in person or in a mediation setting, really getting them to shift their perspective about the entire situation where maybe they felt despair, like they were about to lose their home. Now they feel optimistic uh, where they saw us as the enemy. Now they see us as a partner. And, and I have to say, I, you know, like to toot, you know, toot my own horn a little bit, I am really good in mediation settings. Um, I, I've walked into mediations and most lawyers and mediators will tell you that mediations never result in successful uh, resolution. Um, I have a very, very high percentage um, success rate in that world. And it's because I listen to our mm -hmm. borrowers yeah. and I, and I really try to satisfy their needs and to do so in a way where I'm looking at them, looking at them in the eye and saying, listen, I'm not giving you a free house here. If that's what you want. But besides that, <laughs> let's figure out a way that, that we can create a um, resolution here and, and, and we can go on uh, and live our lives happily. I, I, I have several borrowers who I get yearly Christmas cards from. 
who I will tell you those relationships started very antagonistically where they were sitting across the table from me saying, you know, I've already tried to, I've already had these conversations with, you know, the people from bank of America and, you know, this is just a waste of time to now they're my best friend because I saved their home that they had refinanced a home they had lived in for 20 years, pulled cash out. Like a lot of people did mistakenly at the height of the market and now we're upside down. And I, because of the position I am with private equity, being able to buy this stuff at a discount, there's, I can turn around and pass some of that discount back to the borrower, reperform the loan, keep everyone in their, in their space and, and reestablish a, a relationship of integrity with our counterparty. Um, and that's probably the thing that I'm most passionate about. Awesome. There you guys have it. Another great episode of PFREI, A Passion for Real Estate Investments. If you like this uh, chat, be sure to share it, like it on Facebook, check it out, check us out on Instagram at A Passion, the number four REI, and the same handle on Twitter. Once again, another great episode of PFREI. I want to thank Bill Bimel for joining us on the show and sharing his years of experience in asset management with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow PFREI on Instagram and Twitter at A Passion for REI. Send us a DM with any questions that you have, and we'll be happy to go over them on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, it's a great day.